0: It has uh, been the uh, pattern of our church family uh, to reflect on one major idea in these texts. And if I were to boil it down to a simple idea, the texts today call us to exercise faith in fretful times. It is hard sometimes to exercise faith, is it not? We look around us at a world that tests our faith in the hand of a loving God. We see uh, so many evidences of chaos and crisis raging in the world round about us. We find ourselves confronted daily, it seems, with so much terror, uh, so much brutality and bloodshed. We're reminded all of the time uh, these days that our government seems hopelessly gridlocked and unable to build the relationships necessary to resolve the important issues of our time. Every single day's news brings more tidings of natural disasters and environmental crises and another tragedy, another grave injustice being done. Bad people seem to be getting ahead. And very good people stomped underfoot or left behind We, in our own lives, personally feel the pain in our bodies, we feel the strain in our households, we feel the sickness in our societies, till the words of the prophet Habakkuk in one of our lessons of this past week become ours, and I invite you to hear those words again. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate such wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. Why, O God, do you seem so impassive, the prophet is asking. Why are you so impotent in your action to resolve the great problems of our time? We hear as well in the Scripture lessons for this week the counsel of the psalmist trying to restore confidence in the heart of one who aches like Habakkuk's does. And the psalmist writes, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong for like the grass they will soon wither like green plants they will soon die away do not fret when corrupt people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes refrain from anger and turn from wrath do not fret, he writes, for it only leads to evil. It is hard sometimes not to be angry or anxious as we look at the world. It's hard not to despair when we consider what's going on in our time. I received a late night phone call from a member, an older member of our church uh, who just couldn't hold to herself. the the sense of anxiety and anger and upset over what was going on in our country right now. She called me almost in the middle of the night in an uncharacteristic way. She just had to have somebody to talk to about what she was feeling. And I understood it. I could resonate with the anxiety and the anger she was feeling. It's hard not to feel these things. It's hard not to take up the tools of evil ourselves when we feel like the great values and virtues of our life together are being assaulted on Every single front. How do we maintain faith in God in such fretful times? How do we continue to hold to the pathway of Jesus when so many people have abandoned it? How do we believe in the triumph of the good when we're living in such fretful times? That's the question I want to ponder with you today in light of the counsel of Scripture and the company of the saints that we join with on this day. In our lectionary reading from Luke chapter 17, we hear the very first followers of Jesus asking much the same question, if you think about it. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, Luke 17 and verse 5. To understand what's behind that Request of the disciples, we need to understand the context of the request. Jesus had just finished telling them that they must be bold to confront sin where they found it in their world. And yet they must be bolder still to forgive sin when they met it in this world. That when someone repented of sin, they should forgive that person. Not just once or twice or three times or four times or five times or six times or seven times. But again and again, they must exercise a persevering kind of grace in this world. And very frankly, the job of being people who lived with that kind of persevering forgiveness and hope seemed very daunting to them, uh, given the profound sin and struggles of this world. And so when they say to Jesus, increase our faith, what they're really saying is, in a world so messed up. As this one is. How can we really do what you're asking? Jesus, you're going to have to do something to increase our internal capacity. To live with the kind of trust and goodness that you seem to be advocating. Because we just don't feel like we've got it in us. And the response that Jesus gives to this plea is an interesting one, I think. First, Jesus underlines the life-changing power of true faith. He says, if you had even a, a mustard seed size amount of the kind of faith that I'm calling you to, it would be world-changing. It would alter everything. Seek that faith. Pray for that faith, he tells them. But then in verse 7 and following, Jesus goes on to describe the necessary mindset behind that kind of life-changing faith. And this is what I think we should spend some time really thinking about together today. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 17 at verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say, will you say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, And sit down to eat. Won't he or you rather say, prepare my supper. Get yourself ready. Wait on me while I eat and drink. For after that, you may eat and drink. And everybody listening to Jesus uh, telling this story would go, well, of course. Of course. It's the job of the servant to do these things. It's wonderful that the master will provide eventually time for the servant to sit and eat and drink. But of course, the first priority of the servant of a master is to serve who? The master. So you also, continues Jesus, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done Our duty. The essential instruction that Jesus is giving here is this one Figure out for yourself who is the master and who is the servant in your life, and align yourself to that reality and its implications. If you believe that it is God's job to wait upon you, uh, to make your life comfortable, to feed you exactly what you want, to make the courses of life go the way you would program them, were you the head of the household? If you believe it's God's job to answer all of your questions about the menu then this life is going to be very fretful for you. It is going to be very upsetting, confusing, worrying, angering. For the reality, as Jesus is trying to say to us here and elsewhere in his teaching, is that God is actually the master. He, He is, as Leighton Ford puts it. Uh, actually God, in capital letters, not just applying for the job, not just asking if it's okay if he has the job. He is God. And what this means is that God is actually in charge of the universe. Uh, he, He actually has a plan, a program, a purpose, a power that is being exercised across the universe and is free to work things out as he chooses. God arranges life not for our comfort, not, not, not for our ease, but to align our character with His, to align all of the circumstances of reality eventually with His. God allows things to happen not to satisfy our will, but to accomplish His will. He moves on His timeline, not ours. He acts in accordance with His ways and not our ways. And in his kindness, he offers us the staggering honor of playing some part in the unfolding of his purpose, of being servants in the work of his kingdom. And our calling, should we decide to accept it, is to do the good he tells us to do, where we have the chance to do that good, to be grateful for the privilege of serving him at all, and to retire at the end of every day and then the end of our life deeply satisfied that those things may still seem messy and confusing in lots of places. We've done our duty. We did what the master instructed us to do. And we trust him for the ultimate results. Now, there is nothing more politically, psychologically, culturally, spiritually incorrect than this thing I've just told you, this thing that Jesus says to us, that there is a God who really is a God, he is the master, and we, at best, get to be servants. Actually, he tells us the good news, that these servant roles we play are simply also the expression of our sonship and daughtership in the family of the faith. But the clarity that we need about who is the master and who is the servant is really the essential difference between being a disciple of Jesus and being merely a cultural Christian or a nominal Christian or something else. This, this clarity about who really is the master and the role we play as a servant is the essential perspective, the essential orientation of faith, as it were, necessary for the Christian life. And it's why the Apostle Paul is able to say, as he does in 1 or 2 Timothy chapter 1, I am suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame, for fretting, for worry. Even if I'm suffering, it's no cause. For Shame, because I know whom I have believed, I know the heart of the master, the power and the goodness of the master, I know in whom I've believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what i 've entrusted to him, to take care of all i 've entrusted to him until that final day. Paul trusts so much in the heart and purposes of Christ, his master that he can go undergo with courage. Anything that happens in the world around him. And you need to understand that when he wrote those words, he was in prison. He was in the, in the Mamertine prison. He was in, in an old dank well. He was, he was sitting in slop. In, 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 down below ground. He could hear through, the, through the, the air grates above him the sound of the Roman Forum nearby as all of Rome and its power and glory was celebrating. And yet there in the dark depth of that prison cell, he continues to believe that his service of the master would not be in vain. That there was a master greater than Nero that he could faithfully put his trust in. And call others to do likewise. It should be said that even the most fervent disciples sometimes struggle to have a faith like Paul's. I know I do. Uh, There are times when I just look up, going, what gives, Lord? How are you managing this world? There are times when I I fret over the wisdom of his ways. I wonder what in the world he's doing. And I suspect I'm not entirely alone in this. It's why I'm fond of the story of the African king who had a a close friend with an unusual habit. And his habit was to look at every situation that occurred in his life and and whether that situation was a, a pleasurable one or a painful one This friend would always remark, this is good. This is good. Well, one day the king and his friend were out on a hunting trip. And it was the friend's routine to load and prepare the guns whenever they went hunting. But on this particular occasion, something went wrong with the gun that the king was using. Because as the king pulled the trigger, the gun misfired, and his thumb was blown off. Examining the situation, the friend came up and said, Oh, this is good. To which the king, howling in bloody pain, said, No, this is not good. And he presented to order his friend sent straight away to jail, where he was sent and languished. About a year later, the king made the Grievous error of going hunting in an area that was uh, known to be inhabited by hostile cannibals. And in an unguarded moment, the cannibals came sweeping in and they captured the king. And they took the king back to their village and they tied him to a stake and they piled up wood all around his feet. And they were preparing to set the flame to the wood and end his life when suddenly one of the uh, cannibals noticed that the king was missing a thumb. And it was their tradition. Not to eat damaged meat. (laughs) So they let him go. Well, you can imagine the, the thought of the king as he's going back to his kingdom. Oh, terrible remorse. He pictures his friend languishing away in that dark cell. And immediately he goes to the prison and he, he goes and he orders the door of the cell open and he apologizes. He says, you were right. It was good that my thumb was blown off. And he proceeded to tell a friend all that had happened to him. Please forgive me for sending you to jail for this long. It was not good that I did this. It was very bad for me to do this. No, said the friend. This is good. It was good. How could it be good, said the king, that I've sent my cherished friend to jail for so long? And the other man simply smiled and said, Don't you see, if I had not been in jail with you, or jail here, I'd have been out there with you and the cannibals. This is good. This jail is good. It remains one of the the great truths so often underlined in the Scriptures that the providence of God may not be understood easily in short periods of time. That the grand tapestry of God's purposes requires a stepping back. It requires a, a distance to fully appreciate and sometimes all we'll be able to see is the brokenness of the now, the, the wreckage of human sin and poor decisions and the vacuum and ache of terrible losses, the throbbing thumbholes of life. In that moment, it will seem always to us somewhere between insanity and insult to assert that somehow... These circumstances are good, right? That somehow God is at work within them. And yet, time and time again, we see that it is so. That we see through a glass but darkly, as the Apostle Paul would put it. We look back at the testimony of this book so often, and the stories it tells trying to impress upon us, the the beating and the jailing of Joseph. Remember old Joseph from the Old Testament, how that becomes strangely the pathway by which he is led into a position to become the right hand of Pharaoh and able, therefore, to save all of Israel and millions of other people in a time of famine. Who could have ever dreamed that when he was thrown into the pit by his brothers or jailed by Potiphar that this was good, and yet it was, strangely. Uh, We read the story of Moses and how he tragically murders the Egyptian and it drives him out into exile, right? Uh, Separated from his family and everything he knows, living in the hardships uh, of the wilderness, uh, where he somehow meets Miriam and, and learns what it is to shepherd a flock through the wilderness, and it prepares him To go on and shepherd the people of Israel to the promised land. And and who could have ever said in the time of pain that this would be good? The rooster's crow over Peter. It seems like such a terrible thing as he denies the Lord. And yet in time that crow morphs from a taunt at human failure into a testimony of the God who works with broken vessels still. I I could tell you so many stories from my own life. You could tell stories, I imagine, from your life of how the gracious providence of God emerged eventually from circumstances you'd never have chosen for yourself. And the reality is some of us are in the midst of circumstances or we have suffered ones we would never choose for ourselves whose goodness we do not get to see in this life, but which will ultimately be borne out to have been a strange and wonderful part of the magnificent, redemptive work of God. Let us be very clear. God is not responsible for sin. He's not responsible for the vagaries of this fallen world. He does not rejoice in our pain. He does not take pleasure in our losses at whatever scale. But in the mystery of his sovereign saving grace, says Paul, God does work together everything for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And that is why the counsel of the psalmist in the face of evil and chaos is this. Trust in the Lord. And keep doing good as far as you see the capacity to do that. Trust in the Lord and keep doing good. Keep believing in God's goodness. Keep behaving According to that goodness, and in the end, all will be well. Some of you especially need that counsel right now, I know. I don't know all of the details of every story within the sound of my voice, but I know enough to know that some of you right now, you are dealing with very difficult circumstances. You're struggling to make sense of what's going on in your life right now. You're going through a very hard time at school, in your home, in your workplace. You're in the midst of a crisis, perhaps, in your health or in your household finance. You're seeing terrible things happening in our country. You're watching things uh, horrific unfolding in our world. You're feeling alone. You're feeling, perhaps, abandoned by God himself. And so I just want to close today with this simple reminder to you. Actually, an invitation to you as we come to the table of our Lord today. Pray for increasing faith. Okay? Pray for the capacity to keep trusting in the God of good. Pray for the ability to keep doing good even if you're down in some dank prison cell someplace. Pray for the ability to wait for the unfolding of his good purposes. And join me as we come before him in prayer right now. Lord, you are the master. And we are really trying to be your faithful servants. Please increase our faith. Help us to trust you and to keep doing good until we can look at our lives and the way that you have worked within them and proclaim with joyful gratitude this is good. For this we pray in the name of you who transformed a cross of death into a bridge to life. In Christ's name, Amen.